Matthew chapter 16. We are continuing a series of sermons from the four gospel accounts. Uh, not Definitely not going to hit on everything uh, in these four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but we're going to be sampling from a variety of them. Uh, through this question of walking with Jesus. And as we're doing this, we're encouraging ourselves uh, not just to be disembodied readers of the text. Uh, it's really easy to do. Uh, it really is, um, especially when we become familiar with it. Those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible, um, maybe it's more life to you, more um, uh, kind of uh, stirring and, and kind of draws you in. Uh, for some of us, maybe we've read some of these things many times, and so we need to uh, maybe just take a moment, pray to the Lord uh, where we are, and just say, help me really engage and enter this text and what is happening here. Uh, these are real people uh, who walked with Jesus, and uh, one of the things that we are endeavoring to, um, uh, to accomplish for ourselves in this series of sermons is to um, really deal with any kind of questions we have about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, what it means to make disciples of Jesus, to grow as a disciple of Jesus, the local church's role uh, in all of that, and uh, taking this journey through some of these key gospel accounts are, are meant so that we can enter this gospel narrative together, experience it together. We're all reading the same thing, hoping that we are um, hearing um, uh, what the Lord has for us on any given day. What's so interesting is we can do all these things together, but the Lord could have you in a different place than the person who sits across the aisle from you. Um, thanks be to God, it does not depend on me to talk to each one of you. Um, it is the Spirit of God uh, who convicts and that we trust He is here as we enter these narratives. So let's go ahead and get into today's text, starting in Chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees approached and tested Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, real quickly, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're new to it or new to Christianity, just want you to know that uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those terms may not be familiar to you. Uh, they were two uh, religious sects or groups uh, within early um, uh, first century uh, Judaism, and they were uh, really opposite ends of the spectrum. What probably brings them together in this text is that they are uh, probably the groups that most represented uh, the council of Jewish leaders, uh, which they called the Sanhedrin. And uh, so that's probably the significance of them being grouped together. But it's really interesting because uh, they are really on opposite ends of the spectrum theologically. Um, these two groups couldn't be any more different. The Pharisees are what we would consider uh, the conservative evangelicals of their day. Uh, they loved the Bible, they read the Bible, they believed it, and they actually tried to live out its ethic. Um, whereas the Sadducees were on the other end of the spectrum, much more in what you would call the liberal theological camp, uh, didn't buy into all of the Bible. Uh, they only considered part of what we call the Old Testament. Um, actual Bible or scriptures. Um, and so uh, they also probably had a little bit more of a secularist mindset to them. Um, so anyway, you see these opposite ends, but, but one thing always brought the Sadducees and the Pharisees together, their dislike and distrust of Jesus. Uh, they just did not like him. And this is another example of them wanting to put him 
uh, to a test because he obviously had already had his disciples gathered to him um, in just previous chapters. Um, and so he had uh, also accumulated some crowds along the way um, that was a threat uh, to these early religious leaders. Uh, they did not recognize or see him as their, uh, as their prophesied Messiah. Uh, so Jesus replied to them in their request from, for a sign from heaven. He says, well, when evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky is red, which was a characteristic of the Middle East. Um, and he said, in the morning, uh, today will be stormy uh, because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Uh, if you have any questions as to what that means, we'll get into that in just a few moments. Then he left them and he went away. The disciples reached the other shore and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is interesting. So he's telling them something and it involves both groups. And so Jesus isn't in the mood to take sides in their particular battle against one another. And he is, for good reason, someone they can, they can unify against because he has something for both of them that they don't necessarily want to receive. Now, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the disciples were discussing among themselves, well, we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> Aware of this, Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it you don't understand that when I told you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, presumably as representative of the rest of the disciples, answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will not be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed 
and to be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So, as we walk through this passage, I did this last week, and I want to just re-emphasize that one of the things we are not doing um, when we take big chunks of Scripture like this is we are not going to address or hit on everything that we could talk about in these texts simply not possible. Uh, we wouldn't have enough time today to get into it. In fact, there's some, a lot of interesting things here uh, that we could delve into that would take us probably quite a bit of time to, uh, to consider and talk through. Um, but we are going to get something of a bird's eye view of what this text is doing. And again, emphasized last week, and I want to emphasize again, oftentimes um, we will go through these texts, we will teach through them, we'll preach through them, and we'll take maybe just a few verses, maybe Peter's confession of the Messiah, and we'll really drill down on the Messiah and why he's the Messiah and the implications of being Messiah. And that's a good thing to do. But sometimes there's actually um, a benefit to taking a larger overarching theme over the course of an entire set of verses or collection of uh, passages, or even in this case, an entire chapter and actually seeing a unity and how it might actually be interweaving with itself and telling um, something even broader than what we can see in the minutia of it all. And it's all good. We can get into the minutia and find some really good things, but there's also something good to come back on and to say, what's something bigger? And I wanna, I wanna tell you what in, in this passage is probably the operative idea or operative phrase that really leads us to kind of a unifying or a uh, interweaving of these passages is what he tells his disciple when he says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I say that because um, as we go through the series, one of the things that Jesus helps us with is um, a variety of ways of understanding what it means to be a disciple of his. And what he's really telling us in that statement and what I would subject to or sub submit to you is broken down through the remainder of this chapter is what it means to be a disciple by being a guarded or an aware disciple. To be a guarded disciple. Um, 
to be on watch, so to speak. These are not just simple words he's saying. He actually is determining for them this is an aspect of being his disciple, to be on watch against teaching that is not of Jesus. Teaching that is of something else. Now what he's not telling his disciples here, he's not telling his disciples to beware of and watch out uh, for all of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, because if we were to detail all the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we would find bits of truth and goodness in their teaching. All of what they taught was not bad. Um, and we'd be foolish to say that, and Jesus would never say that. But Jesus has very particular things in mind here. Um, there's a particular thrust to the teaching that you want to watch out for. Uh, when it comes to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and really just anyone else, um, there's a leaven, a, a, a teaching that is actually incredibly harmful. Teaching that leads people to see and treat um, the scriptures, uh, God's revelation, as leading to more than just the core elements of the gospel message. That's really what it boils down to. And that's really what I hope to show you today is what he's getting at. Anything that drives people and stirs people uh, to get away from, to, to basically move on from and, and work away from the core of the gospel message is effectively leaven. Um, and to beware of it and to watch out for it. Um, the reason we can be assured of this, once again, um, is what Jesus is saying that surrounds this passage. And effectively, what we have in this passage is two things. A breakdown, first of all, a breakdown of the key elements or facts or movements um, of the gospel message. And two, um, because of that, a grid through which uh, you and I can uh, actually spot and avoid leaven. To spot and avoid bad teaching. Uh, teaching that can be deceptive. Uh, sometimes it's deceptive. Bad teaching uh, doesn't have to be deceptive. Uh, sometimes it can be just distracting. Uh, it can just distract us. Basically push us down rabbit trails, endless rabbit trails. Um, basically it's the, the, the scripture version uh, of getting stuck on that one website that leads you down the rabbit hole of something that you forgot from long ago and you wanted to remind yourself of. Uh, and all of a sudden you're well-researched on some obscure cartoon you watched when you were six years old, uh, more so than you ever thought you would be. Uh, so, so this is what I'm talking about. We can get into obscurities. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul warns people about getting into uh, the kind of teaching that leads you into endless debates and myths and, and, and just, just weird discussions that end up in no profit at all. Um, and so he's basically saying anything that, that, that is deceptive, anything that's distracting, um, anything that's disingenuous, um, these are the kinds of things that would fall under the category of leaven that he is going to um, break down for us. So for the remainder of our time, um, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a guarded disciple. Um, and I got to tell you, this is actually very energizing, exciting to me. Um, to uh, address because this is one of the responsibilities um, of a pastor, uh, of, of pastors in a church. Your elders are supposed to uh, equip you um, and help you in protecting you from really, really bad and wonky teaching um, within um, 
uh, within um, the scope of Christianity because even within the scope of what I would call normative Christianity, we have some weird stuff. Um, and um, I have some good friends and brothers in Jesus that I would never say they're not a brother or sister in Jesus, but I would say uh, they are way too distracted about things in other realms uh, that I probably just can't get real distracted about. I don't have time. I don't have the energy to get distracted about. Um, you can tell this a lot on social media channels you follow. Like they have their one trick pony. They only talk about one thing and one thing all the time. And it never seems to be about, um, it never seems to lead back to, or if it does lead back to the gospel, the gospel is just a convenient attachment to their thing, their true message that they're always giving. Um, anyway, just, it breaks my heart, but it's, but it's just out there and it's true. Um, so based on, on this, we're looking to see what it looks like to be an, um, uh, an on-guard or on-watch disciples and what Jesus provides for us in these texts and based upon what he provides for us in these texts, we can actually um, uh, create at least three important questions, a, a grid, <laughs> if you will, uh, through which we can filter the wealth of teaching that's out there. Um, you think that they had a wealth and um, uh, just load of teaching um, within the religious communities of their day. Uh, friends, they didn't have the internet. Um, they didn't have podcasts. They didn't have uh, YouTube. They had none of this stuff. Um, it is absolutely mind-boggling the amount of information we have. Uh, just crazy. And um, man, we could really do to just extract ourselves from most of it. We really could. Uh, it would probably be really healthy to extract ourselves from most of the information uh, that's out there. Um, yeah, I'm talking to myself when I say that too. So, um, uh, real quickly, uh, and this is a qualifier. I, I feel like I need to make going into this because I, I, I oftentimes will go through uh, what in my mind might be a pushback that some of you might have on something I'm saying or what might be a question you have. And, and I just want to say this qualifier going into this. Um, the scriptures don't have a problem with what we might call practical helps. Um, and and I, I'll just give you a quick example from our church's life. We do, um, we're doing something on Mondays called um, uh, Financial Peace University. And it's incredibly practical and incredibly important um, because it's all about driving people towards um, healthy uh, money management. And really the larger picture though, it's not just about healthy money management. It's actually about seeing money for what it is. Um, and here's where it pertains to the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. And what the truth is, is a lot of people make money their savior. And um, when you have a proper view of money, uh, then you can actually start to see the Savior well. But, but having said that, and, and, and Adrian, Adrian and Aaron Washburn would not uh, back off of this, there are actually just plain practical helps uh, for helping you uh, know how to view and deal with your money. Bible isn't against all that, as long as we're upfront about it. Like we're, we're just trying to be practical in some cases, and that's okay. Uh, not trying to get away from the core message of the gospel. Um, there's also nothing wrong with implications of the gospel. The gospel has just a 
just incredible amounts of implications to it as to how it can be lived out and ways it can work itself out in our lives. Um, but we can be so singularly tunnel focused on one particular implication that it obscures us from the, the, the larger and, and bigger picture of the gospel. Um, so, but there's nothing wrong with talking about the implications. There's nothing wrong about talking about methodologies, how we do church. Um, every elder team, every pastor team of every church um, kind of organizes their church different, and that's okay. Um, and it's okay to talk about that stuff. These are practical matters. As long as we don't like make those things above the gospel, that's when it gets to legalism, moralism, and all these other isms. Okay, so having said that, um, it is clear that as long as we make sure we're clear about those things, that we are going to um, we are going to teach some things. We're going to talk about some things. We're going to expect some things um, that are of some value, um, but they are not of ultimate value in the way that the gospel is. Okay, so with that out of the way aware, um, being aware that uh, there are sometimes um, that some people will make way too much of what we call practical, um, and it might stir people's hearts and lead them away from the core of the gospel, um, I still have got to go through this grid, um, because that's always possible, uh, even when it's well-intentioned um, to just be practical about some things. All right, so here are the questions we can ask from today's text. First one is this. Is or could Jesus be any less of the Messiah he is? Could this teaching, could this principle, could this whatever make Jesus any less of the Messiah than he is? And again, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. Beware of their teaching, the core of their teaching, or the nature of their teaching. And surrounding this, after having discerned for his disciples what he meant for this, he then goes into the question of, who do the people say I am? Because that is considered core to the gospel's message. Core to the gospel's message is the person of Jesus. Jesus is absolutely central to the gospel's message because it is about him. The gospel message cannot be a gospel message without Jesus being who he says he is. And so he asked them, who do the people say I am? They said, well, maybe Jeremiah, maybe Elijah, maybe even John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Jesus is the Christ. He was confessed as such by Peter. He's the son of the living God. This confession from Peter reminds us that aside from everything else that Jesus might have been, and he was many things. He was called rabbi, right? Which means he was a teacher. Oftentimes, he is just a teacher to many people. But that's all he is. Now, he certainly wasn't less than being a teacher, but he was far more than he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, above all everything he was. The core of his identity to and for us is as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as the sent one, the Holy One of God. 
And so where we run into trouble is where anything, teaching or otherwise, necessarily stirs us or presses us to consider Jesus mainly only a good teacher or mainly only a good moral example or mainly only an ethical man, one worthy of respect or only one who inspires, inspires us to do and be our best or maybe even just one of the greats. There are many who love the scriptures, who unfortunately read the scriptures from such a rigid and structured way that they miss that the Bible is always, according to Jesus, about him. And so they will rigidly talk through an Old Testament passage and tell you everything it says and all the story has to say and even show you the moral of the story. But it somehow never was about Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples the Old Testament was always about him. So our challenge is always to see how the Old Testament actually draws us to, glorifies, and leads us to him. You could easily read the Bible in a rigid and, and, and be careful, literal way, and that's not how I define literal, but some people define it as literal, in a literal way that is so rigid that you basically keep Jesus out of the Old Testament. And, as a, as, and you can't help but do this, but if you do that, you can't help but make Jesus no more than simply one of the great religious leaders of the Bible. He just happens to be the one that was talked about most recently in what we call the New Testament. But again, he says that's not who he is. He says who I am is who the whole Bible is about. The Psalms, the law, the prophets, they were, they were meant to tell you about me. We have many in our culture who we would call gifted teachers of the scriptures gifted leaders within the broader scope of Christianity, both here in our, in our own area, our own cities, in the Metroplex, around our country, and even around the world. Um, I mean, and I, and I say that genuinely, like, like some genuinely good, good teachers and leader, leaders, um, bloggers, podcasters, um, But it is interesting with such a load of stuff, how quickly by just becoming consumers of all of that, that Jesus, not even on purpose, but Jesus kind of becomes moved to the side. Even when those leaders and bloggers and podcasters and preachers are like just dead on and glorifying Jesus. Sometimes some of those do it in so, so skillful a way that we become enamored with them and not the message of him they are speaking of. Um, and you can tell when we've done this, 
I've seen this a lot in the last few years. Um, a well-known, well-thought-of, well-respected Christian leader kind of goes down to either uh, moral failure of some sort um, or, um, or just basically renounces the faith in some cases. And um, people just light them up. Just light them up. Let them have it. Vitriol, anger, whether it's verbal, whether it's over the social media channels of what's of what people are speaking on. It's just really interesting. And that's kind of a telltale when people get so vitriolic and angry and all that. It tells you this. They had a lot riding on that person being good. And they've disappointed them. And they're lashing out. Let me break down what you've done in that case. You have objectified that person and made them something that they cannot be for you. You've put them on a pedestal in a way they cannot handle. And as a result, um, what you didn't recognize as objectification and pedestal placing before, now you're finally seeing in that they've let you down. You have so associated something of your identity with them continuing on in a godly fashion that it is just made you their heresy is a shame to you. I'm not saying you can't be angry about it. I'm not saying you can't be wholly angry about the fact that a popular, well-known person has gone down in flames. That's all fine and good, but there's an overreaction we engage in that really betrays something of where our heart should not be. Um, by the way, this includes me on a very localized level. Um, when I let you down, and let me promise you something, I will let you down. When I let you down, whether it's the first time, whether it's the 10th time, we'll find the degree to which Jesus is your Redeemer and your Messiah. There's no lack of fallen Christians and leaders that are disappointed, but so many have this in common. People treat them as just representative of the team they're on, the flag they're flying. Jesus is warning us against that, saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They have certain teachings, certain characteristics that they fly. Don't lump yourself with the Pharisees. Don't lump yourself with the Sadducees or really the Herodians or anyone else, the Zealots, whatever our versions are. Because the point within the scope of the gospel is who am I? Who am I to you? Am I Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, or am I not? If I am, don't let anything or anyone move you away from me. I am the core of the message you have received. If you are someone who's far from God today, the core of the message that we call people to receive when we say receive the gospel of Jesus is the core of receiving who Jesus is and what he did for you. Which we're going to get to that here in just a moment. Let me say this before I move on to the second question. As a practical suggestion, without being down on anyone, any teacher, any blogger, any podcaster, 
without being down on any of them, let's just assume you listen to all the good ones. I still think there's probably something really good for us in making sure we spend more time communing with Jesus than we do listening to them. And so maybe we cut that back. Maybe we cut it back a lot. There's something beautiful to be had in engaging with Jesus and then one another in your local community of, 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 of uh, Jesus' disciples that you can't get by just interacting with a podcast. Just is. Um, second question. First one was, is or could Jesus be any less of the Messiah he is to me? Second question is, is the cross of Christ minimized, marginalized, or otherwise treated with some level of contempt? Is the cross of Christ minimized, marginalized, or otherwise treated with some level of contempt? In verse 21, it says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chiefs, priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And he promptly said to the man he just said was Peter, the rock in which he would build his church upon, he now calls him Satan. And there's a reason for that dramatic turn. Because what Peter did not realize, he thought he was championing Jesus. That he was championing a more victorious, a more rise above it Jesus. But Jesus said, there is no victory without the crushing defeat of the cross. You cannot even begin to enjoy and to celebrate Easter until you have lived through Good Friday. This is the gospel and its message. The cross is central to it. It is about Jesus, but not just about Jesus and who he is as the Messiah and the Christ. The gospel is about what Jesus as the Messiah and cross came to do. He came to be the sacrifice the Redeemer, the Savior we need through the cross. He would be the sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrificial lamb that we would need. And what he's saying here is anything that would lead us to embarrassment over the cross. In the 80s and 90s, um, and, and by the way, this is not a commentary on this. Um, in fact, I, I have no negative or positive really to say about it at this moment, but there's, there became the movement of what would eventually be called the seeker-sensitive church movement. And um, there's a lot of good, a lot of bad in it. Um, it's not a one or the other. Uh, there's a lot of good and bad in it. Um, but one of the things that um, I would notice time and again was um, just almost a, um, an allergic reaction to talking about the cross. Um, but rather, let's just talk about the benefits of Christianity. Let us win them through the benefits. Let's not talk about the loss of your life. 
And so that's, I don't know if you know this, but that's one of the reasons why Matthew places Jesus' call to carrying one's cross after this. He says, let there be no mistake. This is not simply about me going to my cross, to my death. This is about me going and you following me to it. (laughs) To suffering. To sacrifice. And so, the cross of Christ cannot be something we're embarrassed about. Much of the well-intentioned teaching that went on in the 90s and the early 2000s to show and display the beauties and the benefits of Christianity, which are all true, I would not argue with a lot of them. They were, though, with a heart that decided we're going to avoid the cross because we're embarrassed of it. This is where Paul understands human nature, and he says, I am not ashamed of the cross of Christ. I will not be ashamed of it. Because he knows that is a tendency or a bias of our hearts sometimes to be ashamed of it and try to avoid it and therefore stir people to only think of things that avoid suffering and sacrifice. This is a way we minimize and marginalize the cross. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more about this today because next week I'll actually get into this a little bit more. Um, But I do want to mention that not only are we sometimes embarrassed, but we get offended by the idea of the cross. Uh, Some have have called it cosmic uh, child abuse on God the Father's part uh, to make his son die on the cross. Some have actually shrunk the cross by eliminating parts of its meaning. And here's an example of what I mean by that. It was an act of benevolence on the part of God that his son, God the Son, would die on the cross, would offer a sacrifice, but the idea that it was actually a substitute, meaning he sacrificed for us, but to say that he was punished by God is a step too far. That is marginalizing the cross because you're wanting to eliminate a part of the cross and what it did. This is why when we take communion, every once in a while I remind people of this, is not only that when we take the cup that holds the wine or the juice, are we seeing the cup in, in the actual substance inside of it as representing the, br- the blood of, that represents sacrifice? and the forgiveness of sins. He didn't just forgive sins, he also took your punishment. That's why we talk about the the cup or the bowl as being a cup and bowl of wrath, using biblical imagery. It was not just a cup of wine representing forgiveness of sins, it was a cup or bowl representing the many images of cups and bowls representing wrath in the Bible. And that Jesus took that upon himself. Anything that would shrink the cross, eliminating parts of its meaning, If I could just sum this up, beware of all the many prosperity messaging that wants to capture your heart and mind. There's a lot of prosperity messaging. And I'm not just talking about the variety that that are easy to go to, like health and wealth movements and whatnot. There's a lot of prosperity um, angles out there, Uh, not just that. 
Just beware of prosperity messaging that captures your heart and moves you away from the idea that Jesus had to go to the cross and that you are called to follow him to the cross. Final question. Is the resurrection of Jesus either less of a big deal or more of a side note in what is fantastic and drawing to you about Christianity? Or about your view or what you think is the gospel? And you may go, where is this coming from in the text? It actually comes from uh, the front part of our text today, what we first read when we read about the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Great question. Matthew 12 actually helps us get there if you were to turn back a few pages. Uh, he's already talked about the sign of Jonah once and it really helps us here. It says this in verse 38 of chapter 12. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here in front of you. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Look, something greater than Solomon is here. So obviously when he is referring to the sign of Jonah, he's referring to the sign of the resurrection. He's saying the resurrection is going to be the preeminent climactic and only sign you're going to get. You seek signs. In that generation, it's to come and you're going to get it. In our generation, the sign of Jonah, the sign that we seek, we've already received it. It is the resurrection. It implies that the Ninevites had some awareness of Jonah's story of being in the belly of a big fish and then spit up on land, of course. And like Jonah was a man considered dead but delivered from death by God, so Jesus' resurrection will be the only sign given that Jesus is who he says he is and that the gospel is true. For those that need more, for those that need a teacher that scratches their itching ears. For those who need wonders and signs and, and fantastical excitement, something that they can point to. Jesus says he's got the best of them all. And it was the resurrection. And this is why what I consider some of the best gospel proclaimers and teachers in our world, whether dead or alive today, are the ones who draw us constantly back to the cross, who is Jesus to you, and investigate the facts of the resurrection. And if it is true, 
and receive the gospel message because if it is true, it means everything. They draw us time and again. They don't need to persuade us to trust Jesus because he makes your life better. You don't need to trust Jesus because I have a sign in our tortilla chip to show you that his presence has come out and is amongst us. See, look, it's a little figure of Jesus in my tortilla chip. Look at the cloud in the sky. Doesn't that look like Christ on the cross? How can you not believe after seeing that? Because it was probably just a cloud in the sky. And you sometimes see things that you think you see when you see clouds in the sky because they're interesting and they make movements. But you don't need any of that stuff. People searching for signs, they're off track. Sign has been given. It is the resurrection. And it's what we get to it's what we get to celebrate here in the next few weeks from now. Let me finish on this. Um, and by the way, none of this repudiates what I would call classic apologetics. Classic apologetics is a great way to talk people and to walk them and to move them towards the person of Jesus and his cross, and his resurrection. Zero problem with that. What my friend Scott Hudson always reminds me of and others of though, if it's just about winning an argument and convincing people that you're smarter than them, you've gone off the rails. Classic apologetics is a tool, beautiful tool to move us to the person of Jesus and his work on the cross and the victory of the resurrection. So with that, let me close this way. Let me go back to the operative phrase here. Watch and beware. Those words are really important here. Watch and beware. Because we could have just glossed over that and just said, just focus on the leaven and say, when we see leaven, I'm just going to get on social media. I'm just going to post about leaven. And I'm going to call them out and I'm going to slam them and I'm going to contemn them. doesn't actually say to do that. It says, watch and beware. Watch and beware. In other words, take note. You can listen to others who have what you think might be deviating ideas or may have an agenda that is not the cross of Christ, that is not the person of Christ, that is not his resurrection. You can listen to them. What this text is telling us, though, quite clearly, is just be careful to not be duped. You can listen. You can learn from people and their mindset and what they're thinking, it's all good. Don't be disrespectful. Just don't be duped. Know that you have the capacity to be duped. That's the biggest hurdle you and I got to get past. You and I all have the capacity to be duped. None of you is smarter than the rest of us. I certainly am not. I have been duped as a pastor. Come on. We can all be duped. This is telling us to be on watch and be aware. I would also say that a part of being on watch and aware is that we continue to act as Christians as we are on watch and aware, meaning the ethic of Christ, we are winsome. No matter what you think of how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
he actually interacted with them. And he actually answered their questions sometimes. Not the way they wanted it answered, but he was generally respectful most of the time. Sometimes he used some harsh language, but most of the time he was respectful. Be winsome. Be non-condemning, except when divisive and overtly anti-gospel or what we would call heretical. Someone's being divisive and overtly heretical? Okay. Then you can say, I'm going to stop you right there. You can do that. But otherwise, be winsome, non-condemning. Some people just get excited about certain things, and they're just young in their faith, and they just get sidetracked about some things. And just be willing to kind of hear and work that out within relationship, okay? I'm guessing that some of us have gotten really ramped up on something and shared with others, and maybe we've overplayed the hand of the value of what we've shared. It's okay. We can learn. But if it's divisive or anti-gospel or heretical, shut it down. If it's public, my opinion, Paul condemned things publicly that were being done publicly. So I have no problem with that. Anyone who wants to tell you to say, hey, you need to keep this matter private and go to him in person. Well, if someone makes something public, it's public. <laughs> public sphere is public sphere. And you got to say something publicly a lot of times. And it's a good thing to do that. If local... Um, I do think that it's a good, a good practice for you to loop uh, your local church leaders into it if they're unaware, uh, because that's actually a part of our job description, is to protect and to um, deal with um, really just, just not non-gospel teaching and to uh, either ask it to be stopped or to say, hey, until you can stop that, you're actually just not welcome you're divisive and it's a bad it's a bad look and it's not helpful it doesn't draw people to Jesus last thing um, and this is probably the most important thing I could say and that's why I'm saying it closing above all those things when you watch and you're aware you're also watching and awareing being aware as you continue to find ways to drive your own heart back to the center of the gospel's message it's just like that old illustration that's been used for years. You don't know counterfeit bills by studying counterfeit bills. You know counterfeit bills by knowing the original. What original needs to look like. You can spot what is leaven by simply continuing to drown your heart in the depths of the person of Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. The fullness of the gospel message. It is about his person. It is about his sacrifice. It is about his victory. And so let's always endeavor to draw our hearts back to that. And so be on watch for the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees of our own time.